Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the show that brings journalists together to discuss the week's media affairs. Coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Rafael Garcia. Coming up, the 60-minute saga continues. Producer Stephen Rice has been let go, but not without a fight. The Guardian is in damaged control after it was revealed a number of submissions by a long-term freelance journalist contained serious misreporting. And Fairfax and Sky News have agreed to carry content from China daily, the Chinese Communist Party's central media agency. What's behind the deal and can Australia's major news providers ensure independence? Joining me in the studio, freelance investigative journalist Jess Hill. Hello, Jess. Oh, hi. hi. I'm here. <laughs> Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. And... One who is not here just yet is research fellow at the Lowy Institute, Peter Kai, but he'll be joining us very shortly. And on the phone, we have media reporter for Crikey, Miriam Robin. Thanks for having me. And if you'd like to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can find us at Fourth Estate AU. That's all letters, no numbers. It's been labeled the greatest misadventure in 37 years of 60 minutes. We've all followed the Beirut Operation Saga and talked about it here on Fourth Estate when it first came to light. Now, Channel 9 has released its findings without actually saying much. And producer Stephen Rice has lost his job after 20 years, 28 years sorry, with the network. Email correspondence shows that then-executive producer Tom Malone and chief of staff Kirsty Thompson were aware of the plan to fund the so-called child recovery operation. What message does it send to hold only Stephen Rice accountable? Well... I guess it's a strange message because actually the internal review that was conducted by Channel 9 didn't recommend firing anybody. So why they've decided to single out Stephen Rice, I guess maybe as a pressure valve, you know, to show that they're taking some accountability. But of course, then that just reveals how little accountability they're taking because they're getting rid of some, you know, underling producer rather than going for senior management or for any of their big stars like Tara Brown, who apparently was intimately involved with the story. So I don't know what message it's sending. It's confusing. Marion, what do you think? Um, well, I think, I think, so there's, you know, Stephen Rice is taking legal action right now. And, and you know, he, uh, you know, and there've been documents released to the Daily Telegraph that, that show that there was a, a whole range of knowledge about, um, about the story. In fact, the the money to actually pay the um, the child abduction agency was there even before it went to 60 Minutes because it was Inside Story that was originally considering running the story and then they decided to give it 60 Minutes. So, you know, to the public, I think paying the child abduction agency is probably the, the biggest no-no that the show did and, and that was there even before Stephen Rice got involved. But then what's happened since then is that, uh, you know, there's been counter-briefing to other journalists which say that Stephen Rice didn't do a a whole number of of things you would expect, like um, having having visas prepared for the children and things like that. I think it's really hard to actually know what happened at the moment because it's just the whole thing has become this this media war in in preparation for the court case. And of course, there's the ongoing legal action in Lebanon. Um, So I, I just think there's so many claims and counterclaims going around. It's it's really hard to, to make sense of, of whether Rice was the scapegoat or, or whether he was the person who should have been more on top of this. 
But I love it how, you know, when they say Stephen Rice, he didn't plan it well enough, that basically the subtext of that is because this is possibly a crime, he wasn't sort of, he didn't plan the alleged crime well enough, Mm -hmm. you know. (laughs) He should have been much more cunning. It's not that it happened, it's that it wasn't well planned. He wasn't good enough of a criminal mastermind um, and so we had to get rid of him. I thought exactly the same thing. The focus wasn't on um, how how did this ever happen. It was it was really you know how could it, how could it have been more successful? Yes. Th- th- that's, <laughs> how could we like not have gotten caught? Exactly. Yes. So I guess it just goes to show we you know we we talked about this topic topic here uh, on Fourth Estate, and it just goes to show really that it, you know if it, if it had worked, if it had you know if everything had worked out, this would have been one of those you know. Um, heartwarming stories that we would have been looking back, right? Mm. Um, uh, let's um, touch on on another point. Um, I read um, I read an article that actually um, there was a source quoted to Fairfax um, that suggested that if the mother trying to get her children out of Lebanon was you know perhaps overweight or ugly, that it would have been a very different story. And Jess, I know you have an opinion on this one, but I'd like to hear from Peter Kai first, just to bring this to um, bring him in. Thank you. Uh, welcome, Peter. Oh, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Peter, what do you, what do you think there? Would if um, if if the mother of the children that were trying to be you know recovered um, from Lebanon was was um, overweight or ugly? Do you think maybe there wouldn't have been so much of a story here or for sixty minutes? Um, I would, to be honest, I'm not an expert in this area. Since you asked the question, I think um, maybe the first thing that comes into my mind would be maybe a totally inappropriate comparison, I will be thinking about really the Bali Nine and the Chappelle Corby kind of things in terms of media attention when you have a good-looking girl and and there was so much media attention and also kind of a public support, whereas, you know, you look at other people, they kind of languished in jail for a very long time until kind of before their execution, suddenly they got this attention. Maybe I know, just I, I wasn't really prepared for this question. So mm. since you asked, that's the first thing that came into my mind. That's okay, Jess. Yeah. Well, I guess it's that whole, I, the underlying subtext of that is that, you know, if you're not an attractive woman, maybe you, you come from working class, all these sorts of things, maybe you don't deserve to have your children back. But you know, we do give more credibility to women who, who are more good looking, who represent the middle class. You know, this is this is someone that looks like any of us. Um, and of course, like television and especially programs like 60 Minutes work much better with good looking subjects. Miriam, what do you think? I think this is, you know, commercial current affairs television. It's extraordinarily competitive. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult to do well in. Uh, you know, they, they want people to keep watching. And if one of the reasons people keep watching is because they form an, an instant connection or, or they just like looking at the, the, the star subject of the episode, um, you know, that, that, might keep her, that might help the ratings. So... Um, I, I really don't think it's it's much more complicated than that. It's just a, a factor of how how commercially competitive this area of television is. Mm. And Adam Whittington and the other men tasked with kidnapping the children remain in jail in Lebanon after calls for Channel Nine to assist in getting them out have been ignored. Really, what are the chances of the network actually getting involved here? What do you think, Miriam? Um, well, I think this is um, this is a, a really difficult one. I mean, I think any any journalist would just hate to think that someone who'd, who'd proven integral to their story, who'd been a key source or, or someone they'd contracted to do something, is then stuck behind in jail. I mean, I, I just, I, I'm kind of shocked that this wasn't doesn't appear to have been a major issue for Channel Nine. I mean, I guess one of the 
one of the justifications I've heard is that, you know, this is his job. He knew what he was getting into um, and, you know, it didn't work out. So, you know, tough luck. But um, it's it's really hard to, to fathom for me. Um, but but I guess this is just how, how journalism gets murky when you're paying huge amounts of money over. I mean, you know, the agency was paid $70,000 and I guess to deliver a service and maybe that stopped Channel 9 seeing them as, as a source, but just as a contractor or, I don't know, it's complicated. But there's also, isn't there, the I saw News Corp reporting today that the criminal trial is still underway and that they, mm. the Channel 9 staff who've come back here may still be sentenced to jail in Lebanon in the upcoming trial mm. and yeah. may actually be extradited back to Lebanon unless the Attorney General steps in. So it may be that this, like, this story really isn't over yet. Yeah, well, they got bail, and and then the um, Adam Whittington did not. Um, so, yeah, who knows? It sounds like we might have to um, talk about this one in a few weeks' time again. Um, but just one last point on this one. The review of the incident was actually commissioned by Channel 9 itself rather than an independent body. And because nothing was broadcast, the Australian Communications and Media Authority is pretty powerless here. Does that provide sufficient scrutiny of this unfortunate sequence of events? Jess, what do you think? Well, the question then probably goes to whether ACMA can actually provide sufficient scrutiny of events too, which, you know, the the jury's kind of out on that. Um, I guess that the – I'm not sure – I'm not an expert on what ACMA can do in terms of of imposing penalties. Um, Certainly, yes, because it's not broadcast, it it doesn't fall under their code, uh, which is incredible. In fact, I think, Miriam, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that if you – if you broadcast something online but not on television, that also does not fall under ACMA's code, which is kind of yeah, incredible because of what's being, you know, how many people are watching things, extras that are posted on websites or streaming, you know, those sorts of things. Mm. So um, yeah. that's more concerning, I think, than it not being able to adjudicate on something that never goes to air at all. The only reason television and radio are, are policed to this higher standard than the rest of the media, including print and online, is because they get the public airwaves. So if you're not using the public airwaves, I guess, um, you know, there is no there is no breach. Um, but even so, I think the ACMA code and, and you know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about this, but I kind of struggle to see what aspect of the code would have been breached because things that are covered in the code are, are things like you're not allowed to, to misrepresent things to your audience. Um, you're not allowed to breach the classifications. Uh, you're not allowed to, um, you know, but in any, many of the things that are wrong with this story are sort of ethical journalism questions that I'm not sure are, are exactly the kind of things the code is uh, made to look at anyway. Are you allowed to pay for a crime? Well, <laughs> I guess, you know, if it was a, a crime in Australia, no, you're not allowed to use, and, and this actually um, has been an issue in the past, you're, um, with, with the prank, uh, with, with some issues, you're, you're not allowed to use the airwaves to commit a crime. So this became an issue with the prank phone call to the British hospital um, involving, you know, the, the Queen and all of that. Oh, sorry, uh, Kate Middleton. That happened a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, so you're not allowed to use airways to in, in, in a crime, but because it's overseas, um, you know, nothing actually ended up happening, uh, you know, that was a sort of significant penalty for that thing anyway. So I'm not sure that there would have been a significant penalty in this case, Um I mean, ACMA can take you off the air, but other than that, you know, there's there's not that much it can do. 
You're listening to Fourth Estate with me, Rafael Garcia, and I'm speaking to Jess Hill, Peter Kai, and Miriam Robin. So 60 Minutes can throw around six-figure sums to bring a story to life. And apparently, if you're a freelancer for The Guardian, you can just make stories up. Well, at least one did. The Guardian US has recently taken down over a dozen stories by one of its freelance reporters, after sources came forward denying ever having spoken to him. The Guardian, to its credit, has taken the matter very seriously and has assigned an independent fact-checker to comb through every article by the contributor. They are also reviewing their publishing procedures for freelancers. Mirin, we saw another example, another recent example of a reporter who was also making up quotes from a US-based online publication, The Intercept. How easy mm -hmm. is it really f to fabricate quotes or, or even entire stories? Um, it's pretty easy, uh, especially if you don't quote anyone who's well known um if you ever get caught your career is over hmm. jess what do you think it's tricky i've actually had communication with this freelancer who oh um, tell us yeah <laughs> oh scandal um here's a source who's confirming having spoken to him <laughs> i didn't publish him if that's you know just just so you know um but yeah so joseph mayton He was a freelancer, as you say, for The Guardian. He was based in San Francisco when he was working for them. But I knew him in Egypt when I was there uh, for the Global Mail. And, look, I had very pleasant exchanges with him. I never had a problem with him. We just exchanged every now and then on Twitter. But he was known for being shonky there. You know, there were so many, he was, his name was sort of bandied around as being someone who you couldn't really rely on. He had a blog um, called Bikir Mazra and it was known for making up quotes. In fact, he was actually fired from Ahram Online, which was the English language um, version of the state media newspaper in Egypt, but was actually quite independent. Um, and he was also um, banned from contributing to this other um, human rights group um, because of similar issues, making up quotes um, that had come to their attention. So I feel like that if you're going to, if you're going to commission a freelancer for 15 stories, not just one or two, but 15, that it's worth looking into them, just asking around, what's this person like? If you don't know anything about them apart from the fact that they just write good stories and come up with incredible quotes, mm. um, then you know, maybe it's worth just sort of keeping your ear to the ground about when you're, when you're expanding your pool of journalists, asking other journalists, what do you think of this guy? You know, um, it wouldn't have taken long to find out that Joseph had a bad reputation. Um, and in fact, I noticed that on Facebook and Twitter, a number of freelance journalists who I knew in Cairo um, were all saying this is absolutely no surprise. So, I mean, that's not the case with everyone. I mean, I think the journalist at The Intercept, that was another case entirely where it seems like He's more on the level of like pathological liar, making up email accounts um, to to pretend that he was a particular source. Or I think he even faked an email account of the editor of The Intercept. So, I mean, that's like on a totally another level. I think with Joseph, it was just more like he, if he needed a quote, he made it up. He maybe just, you know, it, was, it wasn't sort of on this sort of like almost criminal pathology level. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. It sounds like that was just reference check 101 that has gone wrong there, you know. Yeah. For any job, that's what you do, right? And Exactly. And maybe because there's so many freelancers now being employed. I mean, I'm a freelancer myself. Um, but w when publications are starting to use freelancers almost as though they are staff, maybe just that little bit extra checking needs to be done. Um, because actually, I mean, most freelancers, they rely on their reputation 
expectation for their paycheck, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's a good sort of bulwark against this happening all the time. Um, And most freelancers take their reputation very seriously. Um, But a lot of them are young. A lot of them haven't been through newsrooms, haven't been slapped about the chops by some grumpy reporter who makes sure that they do their job properly. So they don't come necessarily to the job with an understanding, an intrinsic understanding of how journalism works. So that's, you know, that's an issue. It's interesting because we've we talk so much about you know having your own brand you know mm. nowadays when you know freelance uh, freelancing is so much more common than it used to be but um, yeah it sounds like he hasn't worked um, too hard on on his own brand you know, no and like look at Johan Hari when he was busted for making up quotes he was one of the most promising writers of his generation now he went he sort of disappeared for a few years and he's re-emerged with a best-selling book. But such was the damage to his reputation that he had to provide audio of every quote in that book and catalogue it on a website and have a glossary at the back of the book because that's how much trust he lost with his readership. Mm-hmm. You bring up the, the question of trust. Um, Peter, I'd like your opinion on this one. How, how damaging can something like this be to a news outlet? I mean, Guardian is one of probably the most reputable international news organization around. But um, I think um, think it's a really good sign they actually came out with some uh, confession that uh, we actually hired this freelancer and he got things wrong. Uh, I think the public um, public omission of uh, guilt, I think, is a very good sign. I think we'll definitely do some damage, but I think... um, I think the mitigation strategy is probably quite successful um, to to be able to own up to this is quite important. So I, I think the damage will be limited, mm. I think. Was it enough, Miriam? Uh, how should media outlets respond when this kind of thing happens? I mean, The Guardian has, um, I think, yeah. taken down some stories, removed quotes from others. You know, is that the right approach? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, that that level of transparency when you find her is really great also because it means that the next person he then submits something to will know this happened. I mean, uh, Jess was mentioning, you know, some of the other places that he's had a problem with. I mean, I, I used to read Bikia Mastra, um, you know, and, and I wasn't aware of that. I guess I wasn't paying a very close eye on it. But, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, I, I guess, you know, if there had been a, a sort of incident before and if it had been made public, which I understand is difficult, it, it might, the Guardian might have avoided this. Um, yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, when, when you're dealing with um, with freelancers, I mean, we at Crikey, we've had freelancers do stories for us that are quite, um, you know, quite hard hitting. And if it's someone who's um, who's not an experienced journalist or something like that, we, we have done stuff like ask them for names and contact numbers, um, you know, interview notes if they have them, um, you know, just gone through and asked them to prove everything they've written. I mean, you can do stuff like that. It, it is time consuming. But, you know, you can call up someone and say, did you speak to this freelancer? I guess, you know, depending on whether or not a story is really controversial, you, you might decide that's not worth it. But um, So is that something yeah. that journalists are generally expected to do? If they're gathering quotes from people on the streets, let's say, should they be mm. expected to take their details for, you know, a scrupulous editor to fact check later on? Yeah, I mean, see, that, that, that's the sort of instance where I think most editors just wouldn't have the time to do that. Um, just because, you know, you, you'll do it if, if a source is saying something quite controversial. But if it's a vox pop, I mean, I just think, you know, newsrooms don't have a lot of staff and I can't see a newsroom devoting that level of effort to, to checking up on something as innocuous as a vox pop. 
Yeah, I guess that's one scenario. And obviously the other scenario where, uh, you know, you'd have uh, reporting that demands the use of anonymous sources. You know, for example, if, if uh, sensitive matter is, is, um, is being reported on that perhaps people wouldn't otherwise share. Just how, how, can, how can this continue to be respected, this balance, you know, between accuracy but, you know, also being able to use anonymous sources? Well, I'll just say, I think yeah, with anonymous on. sources, that doesn't mean the editor doesn't know who it is. Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, is that usually the case? The editor probably knows, Miriam? I think if you're dealing with a freelancer, the, the editor should definitely know, unless it's someone very, very trusted. But if you mm. get a, a fresh piece from someone you don't know, well, yeah, the editor should know. Mm. Jess? Mm. Um, I guess that the way that you keep an eye on it is by doing what The Guardian and what The Intercept and what the New York Times did before that, and that is just come out and, first of all, when you get a, a phone call from a source that says, I didn't say what they're saying I said, um, then you investigate it. And by publicly outing and shaming reporters like this, it does send, you know, a message to all other freelancers or, or reporters, staff reporters that, you know, have been just as guilty of this as well, um, that you will be caught eventually and that perhaps it's not worth it you know, um, given that your career may be destroyed entirely, even if you are someone of the ranking of John Hari, um, who, you know, I think has only just narrowly escaped with his career intact. Um, so, yeah, it's, the, I think that's enough of a deterrent. I mean, it's sort of like, it's like any crime. How do, how do you stop any type of like crime from happening? Well, the you know, the judiciary and then the law provides a deterrent, you mm. know. Um, so I think in, in journalism and stuff, this type of thing provides that deterrent. Just a quick question for each of you before we move on from this topic. We are in a 24-hour news cycle. Do we think that that's a bit of a byproduct of that? You know, journalists are expected to file quickly. You know, is it is it more and more tempting, if you like, to add a few extra quotes here and there to meet a deadline. Jess, just briefly. Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's more about the, um, I mean, I, I think that we have seen a few more in in recent years than, um, than before the freelancers started becoming a big issue. Um, so I think it's probably just more about the diversity of people who are working for newspapers now um, rather than 24-hour news cycle. You can still get quotes. Miriam? I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that freelancers are so badly paid. Um, you know, if, if you're doing anything to, to raise your productivity, even if it's making up quotes because it takes too long to get them, well, maybe it's not, in, you know, maybe you're only getting paid $100 for the piece and you don't want to spend hours on the phone trying to get quotes. Mm. So. Could be. Peter? Uh, maybe I don't really know anyone who make up quotes, but I think nowadays, like you mentioned the, the the time pressure. I think suppose nowadays you say more is people just getting quotes from the press release. It's kind of a you know easy way to to get a quote into your story rather than kind of the manufacture some non-existent quotes. But you say that probably more often nowadays, mm. getting things straight off the press release. You're on Fourth Estate with me, Rafael Garcia, and I'm speaking to Jess Hill, Peter Kai, and Miriam Robin. Fairfax, Sky News, and other smaller players in the Australian media market have agreed to publish content from Chinese state-owned media outlets. Fairfax will include China Watch, an eight-page liftout prepared by the state-owned news site China Daily, in its print publications once a month. But this is a one-way deal. Chinese papers will not run Fairfax content. On the other hand, Sky News and People's Daily Online have agreed to share their content both ways, at the discretion of local editors. Critics say the move will bring Chinese propaganda right to our doorstep, 
But Fairfax says the New Deal will have no, will have no influence in its independence when it comes to reporting on Chinese affairs. Peter, can you talk us through what some of the implications of this deal might be? I think it's really a, more of a symbolic victory. I think um, since 2008 and the Chinese government being trying very hard to, to push for a campaign to reshape its image is really sparked by the international media coverage of a Tibetan uprising. Um, the Chinese government felt it got a very rotten deal in terms of the coverage. So it basically tried to spend a billions every year, try to uh, beef up um, its international media campaign. So with this one is basically a distribution deal. So it just basically means that um, this China daily insert will appear inside Fairfax um, once a month. It's actually nothing really new because Fairfax in the past carried things like from Russia. Um, a supplement, which is also kind of a Russian government uh, publication. And this happened also overseas as well. I think Washington Post also carried insert from China daily. So this is really more of a distribution deal. I think people um, is right to worry about because it is really a, a sign that the Chinese government is trying very hard um, to reshape its um, uh, image abroad. But I really doubt his effectiveness. I think most of the time, I think people just probably put it straight into rubbish being or have a quick glance. Um, I really doubt his impact. I think it's um, the fear of uh, what a potential impact we're having in Australia. I think is perhaps a bit exaggerated. Well, the first eight-page supplement of China Daily was inserted in Fairfax Papers just last mm. week. Mm. With One article was titled, Manila has no leg to stand on, reaffirming mm. China's rights to the contested islands yeah. in the South China Sea. Is it reasonable for readers to expect that all content within their chosen publication goes through the same level of editorial rigor before being published? Or are, are the readers going to be able to make that difference? Or just if you look at, uh, I suppose, the, the first page of the, the insert, it marked as um, that uh, it's prepared by China Daily. It has really nothing to do with Fairfax. I suppose Fairfax can actually make the warning a um, bit more explicit um, and that will actually warn the reader. I think, in a way, perhaps you can even compare to nowadays, you see um, the, the information prepared by commercial publishers, you see in the paper as well. Mm. So it should be treated as some way, marketed more, um, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a dark, deep red or whatever you can to make sure that uh, the reader actually know it has nothing to do with Fairfax. Maybe it's a, a much better way to, to alert readers to potential pitfall. Miriam, just a brief comment on this one. We're running out of time. Uh, what are your thoughts? Should we be concerned? I mean, I think um, I think it's worrying. I, I do think, you know, Peter's right to say it's not the first time it's happened. And, and I do think that some readers will look through this quickly and not realise that it is um, not... Fairfax editorial copy. I think Fairfax has, has brilliant foreign coverage and it's independent foreign coverage and I don't think it's been affected by these deals in the past. But I think that's the whole reason why readers would trust what they read in Fairfax. And if they then see something that they don't realise isn't from Fairfax and, and it's, you know, a, a very, you know, biased view, then I'd, I would worry that some readers um, would take it seriously. That's it from us on Fourth Estate. Thanks to my guests, Jess Hill, Peter Kai and Miriam Robin. Don't forget you can subscribe to Fourth Estate on iTunes and, of course, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. My name is Rafael Garcia. You can catch us at the same time next week. But before then, ideally right now, if you like what you just heard, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thank you for joining us. 